those of you who don't know me, I'm Slade Reinhardt. I'm the director of Grow and Connect Ministries here at Fellowship Bible Church, and uh, it is my awesome privilege to bring God's Word to you on this beautiful Easter morning. Well, uh, every Sunday morning when we gather as a body of Christ, we do gather to worship the triune God through God the Son, Jesus Christ. But on this morning, this Easter morning, this Resurrection Sunday, we especially focus on the resurrection of our Lord Jesus, the capstone of his life and ministry, the final proof that he was indeed and is indeed the Messiah, the Son of God, the living Savior. We're going to be in Luke chapter 24, starting in verse 13, if you want to go ahead and turn there. And while, <clears throat> excuse me, while you're turning there, I'll give you a little bit of context to because we're going to be picking up sort of in the middle of a story. Uh, before verse 13 of Luke chapter 24, it's resurrection morning, and as we know, looking back, of course, Christ has risen from the dead, but his followers don't know that yet. Well, early that morning, as you know, there were a group of women that were followers of Christ who visited the tomb, and they brought spices and ointment with them in order to anoint his body as a way of honoring this man that they so deeply loved and followed. And when they arrived at the tomb, they found that the stone that covered it had been moved away. So they walked inside to see what things were like, and they didn't find his body. All they found were the cloths that he had been wrapped in for burial. And as they were perplexed and puzzling over what in the world that could mean, two angels appeared to them and said, Why are you looking for the living among the dead? He is not here. He is risen. And the women, of course, were excited and overjoyed, and they quickly returned to the city to tell the apostles and the other disciples that Jesus was risen, and they had seen the empty tomb, and they had received a testimony of angels. Well, from the report, the disciples and apostles didn't quite believe that he was risen. They just, they just really couldn't wrap their minds around that. So some of them went to the tomb to check out things to see if it was as they said. And sure enough, they did find the empty tomb. <clears throat> but they didn't see Jesus, so that didn't quite cement it in their minds. So now we pick up in verse 13. <clears throat> Excuse me. <clears throat> now we pick up in verse 13 of Luke 24. Follow along with me. That very day, two of them were going to a village named Emmaus about seven miles from Jerusalem. And they were talking with each other about all these things that had happened. While they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them. But their eyes were kept from recognizing him. And he said to them, What is this conversation that you are holding with each other as you walk? And they stood still, looking sad. Then one of them, named Cleopas, answered him, Are you the only visitor to Jerusalem? <clears throat> Pardon me. Are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? And he said to them, what things? And they said to him, concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet, mighty in deed and word before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, it is now the third day since these things, these things happened. Moreover, some women of our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning, and when they did not find his body, they came back saying that they had even seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. 
Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but him they did not see. And he said to them, O foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. So they drew near to the village to which they were going. He acted as if he were going farther. But they urged him strongly, saying, Stay with us, for it is toward evening, and the day is now far spent. So he went in to stay with them. When he was at table with them, he took the bread and blessed and broke it and gave it to them, and their eyes were opened, and they recognized him, and he vanished from their sight. They said to each other, did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures? And they rose that same hour and returned to Jerusalem, and they found the eleven and those who were with them gathered together, saying, the Lord has risen indeed and has appeared to Simon. Then they told what had happened on the road and how he was known to them in the breaking of the bread. Amen and amen. This touching story of one of Christ's post-resurrection appearances revolves around two disciples. One of them, as you heard in the story, is named Cleopas, and the one is never named. But the story begins with a picture of crushed hope. These two disciples are headed to the town of Emmaus, possibly because they live there, so they've left Jerusalem to make that walk. And as you would expect of followers of Jesus, as they were walking, they were talking about all these momentous events that had happened over the past few days. Christ's betrayal, his arrest, his unjust trials, his his horrible torture at the hands of the Romans, and ultimately his bloody crucifixion. And then on top of that, there's this strange report that his tomb is empty. And as they're talking, Jesus himself walks up and joins them in their journey. And you might expect on first reading the story that you're about to hear shouts of, of jubilation and excitement, but it says that their eyes were kept from recognizing him. So Jesus hid their understanding so that they wouldn't know that he was indeed the risen Savior because he wanted to teach them something. So Jesus walks up to them, listens to them for a little bit, and then he says, what are you guys talking about? And Luke says that they stop. They just come to a stop, and he adds, looking sad. So they had been processing their grief, their disappointment, their deep sorrow over the loss of Christ And then this stranger comes up to them and asks them what this is all about. And it just brings to the forefront, once again, the sadness that's nestled into their hearts. And on top of that, they're absolutely shocked that somebody could have just come from Jerusalem not knowing what they're talking about, not knowing about these momentous events that have just happened. In fact, Cleopas responds to his question by saying, Are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who doesn't know the things that have happened here in these days? Good night, man. How can you not know what we're talking about? You must be the only person in the city who doesn't know it. But Jesus wants to draw them out. He wants to draw out what's on their minds and on their hearts. So he continues and says, what things? So these disciples probably look at each other somewhat sadly, take a deep breath, and try their best to summarize all that had happened over the past few days. We're talking about the things concerning Jesus of Nazareth. And then they proceed to tell Jesus what they believe about Jesus. They regarded him as a prophet whose mighty deeds had shown that he was indeed approved by God and that God was working through him. His deeds were also, excuse me, his deeds and words also won him the approval 
of the crowds of Israel. Matthew 21 says that the crowds regarded Jesus as a prophet. So at this point in the story, Cleopas and his friend have told Jesus, Jesus of Nazareth was a prophet, a prophet of God. And then they mention that the leaders of the Jews delivered him over to be crucified. And here's the root of their sorrow. Here is the bottom line of their sadness. Jesus, this prophet, was killed. And while the murder of any prophet is worth mourning, of course, what they say next shows that they believe Jesus to be much more than just a prophet. Because they add, but we had hoped, we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. That's why his suffering and death shook their souls to the core. We had hoped that Jesus of Nazareth was the Messiah, that he was the Savior, that he was the Son of God, that he was the Son of David, that he was the long-awaited Redeemer, but he was killed. This man that we hoped was the Messiah was killed, so maybe he wasn't the Messiah. The Messiah would set us free from Roman oppression, but Jesus is dead now, so he can't set us free. They loved Jesus and they followed him, but now their hope in Jesus was crushed by this horrible turn of events because their hope did not include his suffering and death. The Messiah, they believed, would be victorious over God's enemies. But this man, Jesus, he was killed by God's enemies. He was defeated. They didn't have the whole story, so the torture and death of Christ didn't make sense to them. It shook their faith in him as Messiah, when in fact it should have strengthened their faith in him as Messiah. As Matthew Henry observed, the death of Jesus was the ground of their despair, but in actuality it should have been the surest ground of their hope. Because if you don't understand God's big stories, then the smaller stories don't make sense either. You and I have the full story that these two didn't have at the time, but these two disciples are going through the exact same emotions that you and I go through when our hopes are crushed. When you set your hope on something that gets destroyed or doesn't, hap doesn't happen, you're tempted to doubt God's power. I had hoped that Jesus was the one to redeem me, but my marriage fell apart, so maybe he isn't the Savior. I had hoped that Jesus was the one to redeem me, but now I've been diagnosed with cancer, so maybe Jesus isn't the Savior. Severe pain, whether it's physical or emotional, pushes us toward unbelief. And why is that? It's because we are hardwired to believe that things should go along smoothly, that life should be pain-free, especially for a child of God. But the Bible clearly tells us otherwise. In this world, Jesus himself said, you will have tribulation. And Peter reminds us that we will encounter fiery trials. Suffering is not a glitch in your walk with God. It's a feature. But in our fallenness, we're tempted to lose hope when life doesn't go the way we expect. And that's exactly where these two were that day on the road to Emmaus. In the depths of sorrow, despair, and disappointment. And after their sad report of this broken hope, they add, This is now the third day since he was killed. And they knew that was significant because Jesus had told them several times, I will be killed, and on the third day I will rise again. In fact, that, he said that so often that even, even the chief priests and the Pharisees knew about it, which is why they asked Pilate to post a guard at the tomb. Now, it sounds like when they recognize this, that their hope may be coming back. But that isn't really the case, because as they go on to tell the stranger about the report of the women and the empty tomb and the testimony of the angels, you can see that they still don't believe. <laughs> they still don't believe that Jesus is alive. I shouldn't have picked up my hands, apparently. All right, give me just a second. Glad I brought my cell phone up here. 
they still don't believe that Jesus is alive. Because even though they agree, okay, this tomb is empty. He's not in the tomb, but, but no one's seen him walking around. So we don't have the final piece of evidence that Jesus is risen. If I went to my great-grandfather's grave and I saw that it had been dug up and his coffin was laying beside the grave empty, I wouldn't assume that my great-grandfather was alive. I would assume that someone had stolen his body, and surely that was what Cleopas and the other disciple were thinking. The tomb is empty, but we don't know why. Apparently his body was stolen because when these friends of ours went to the tomb, they didn't see him. The irony here is that they were experiencing the very thing that they were most longing for, a visit from the risen Savior. So these disciples are feeling sorrow and hopelessness, but our precious Lord, who loved them so deeply, doesn't let them stay there. After listening to their thoughts on him and the events of the last few days, Jesus responds with a surprisingly sharp rebuke. Oh, foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? You guys know the scriptures, you know what the prophets have said, and you know that this Jesus of Nazareth, of whom you have spoken, has shown himself to be the Messiah. So now you're going to doubt that he really is the Christ because he was killed? Now these disciples were probably shocked by his response, I know I would have been. They were being open to share their grief and disappointment with this stranger, and he comes at them, comes at them with words like this, foolish ones, slow of heart. Of course, Christ was right in his rebuke, one of the things that you observe from his life and ministry is that he knew exactly when he needed to be tender and he knew exactly when he needed to be tough. And in this case, he needed to be tough to bring to mind what they should have known. He said they were foolish because they had read what the prophets had spoken, but they had failed to perceive that that applied to Christ. They were slow of heart. They were spiritually dull to believe what the prophets had prophesied because they had clearly prophesied the Messiah's suffering and death. It was necessary that the Christ should suffer and enter into his glory. They didn't understand what they should have understood, and they didn't believe what they should have believed. There was both a lack of wisdom and a lack of intimacy with God that would have given them spiritual perception. It was as if Jesus was saying to them, don't you believe the word of God? Don't you believe the scriptures? That same rebuke applies to us when we let the circumstances of life determine our heart's posture toward the Lord instead of his unchanging truth. To help them see what they weren't seeing, <clears throat> Luke says this, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Now just sit there for a minute and think about that. This is Jesus, the second person of the triune God, the divine Messiah. He is leading these men on a study of scripture from Genesis to Malachi, or in the Old Testament, would have been to uh, Second Chronicles in the Jewish order of books. Jesus, Jesus is leading these men to understand the scriptures of the Old Testament, how they pointed to him and predicted what was going to happen to him. And here are a few of the scriptures he might have used. In Genesis 3, God told the serpent that the seed of the woman would bruise his head and that the serpent would bruise his heel. Christ is that seed of the woman. In Exodus 12, God told each family in Israel to kill a spotless, <clears throat> excuse me, to kill a spotless lamb and spread its blood on the door of their house. The blood would keep them safe from the destruction of God's wrath, and Christ is the spotless lamb of God whose blood was given to spare us. 
In Isaiah 53, the servant of the Lord is wounded for our transgressions and crushed for our iniquities. And Christ is that wounded servant. All of these and many more point directly to Christ. And through his exposition of scripture, Jesus led his disciples to see that his crucifixion was in fact an essential part of God's plan. <clears throat> it was always part of the counsels of God. And he showed them that he is the great subject of scripture. It is not an exaggeration to say that the Bible is all about Jesus. It isn't a jumbled collection of books filled with interesting tidbits. It's the story of the unfolding plan of God's great, excuse me, the, God, the unfolding of God's great plan of redemption. And Jesus, of course, is the focus of that plan. Jesus is the fulfillment of the promise to Eve <clears throat> and the fulfillment of the promise to Abraham. Jesus is the Passover lamb, the scapegoat, the greater prophet, the star and scepter, the brazen serpent, the smitten rock, he who bore our griefs, the good shepherd, the branch, the lowly king, the pierced victim, the smitten shepherd, the messenger of the covenant, and the son of righteousness. Throughout the entire Old Testament scriptures, God is testifying to Jesus, who he would be and what he would do. All of scripture prepares for points to, reflects, or results from the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ, which means that as we read and study Scripture, the risen Lord is revealed to us. So what do you think was happening in the hearts of these two people as they were listening to Jesus explain the Scriptures? Hope was rising in their hearts again because they were beginning to see that what looked like defeat was actually Christ's victory. They were beginning to see that Christ brought spiritual and eternal redemption to them through his death on the cross. And having moved them from their foolish, unbelieving despair to beginning to understand the necessity of the Messiah's suffering, then Jesus brings them to full joy. He reveals himself to them at last. After this thrilling lesson, through the scriptures, the disciples wanted this man to spend more time with them. So once they arrived at their destination in Emmaus, they urged him to stay. It's getting late. Night's coming. Why don't you stay with us? And so he did. And then he sat down to supper with them. And there's this beautiful unveiling. It says Jesus took the bread and blessed and broke it and gave it to them. And their eyes were opened and they recognized him. Jesus had revealed himself through the scriptures and now he reveals himself in fellowship with them. In this simple act of giving them bread, Jesus opened their eyes to see him for who he really was. And now the picture is complete. They understand that he had to suffer and die and now they know beyond the shadow of a doubt that he is alive because they have seen the resurrected Messiah. They didn't see a phantom or a vision. They walked and talked with a flesh and blood human. He picked up bread, broke it, and handed it to them, which told them Jesus is alive. And that, as you know, is the message of Easter. Jesus is alive. And just as they recognized him, he vanished from their sight. But that didn't dampen their joy because now they knew that their hope in Jesus was justified. Now they knew that he was indeed the Messiah, the Son of God, the long-awaited Savior. Yes, Jesus is the one who will redeem Israel. Jesus is the Messiah and he lives, and that final revelation moved them to action. They rushed back to Jerusalem to testify. I rather doubt that they finished their meal. Cleopas and his friend probably jumped up from the table and took off as soon as possible to get back to Jerusalem to tell the apostles and other followers of Christ. 
They mentioned that as they were walking on the road, wow, did, remember when he was talking to us about Scripture, weren't our hearts burning? Wasn't there something special about this man? And now they knew exactly why. So they rush back to Jerusalem, even though night is falling, find the house where the apostles and the other disciples are staying, and they're ready, excited, and breathless to tell their story, bursting into the house. But before they could even get the words out, the apostles have something to say to them. The Lord has risen indeed and has appeared to Simon. Now, isn't this absolutely glorious? These two are excited to tell the others that Jesus is alive, and the other disciples are excited to tell them that Jesus is alive. Guys, when you left, all we knew was that the tomb was empty, but now we know for sure that Jesus is risen from the dead because he has appeared to Simon Peter. And Cleopas and his friend then add their good news on top of this good news, telling them what happened on the road, how they didn't know him, Jesus was hidden from them, but he unfolded the scriptures before them, and then as they sat down to eat, Jesus broke bread <clears throat> and revealed himself to them. It was good news piled on top of good news, and it's still good news today. As he was guided by the Holy Spirit, Luke wrote this passage to teach us something. This is, not just <clears throat> this is not just a story. It is actual history that happened to flesh and blood people. Jesus physically rose from the dead in a glorified body, and he showed himself to his followers over a 40-day period. They walked with him, talked with him, touched him, and ate with him. In Acts 1, Luke says that Jesus presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs. And this is just one of many of those. If you doubt that Jesus is the Messiah, if you doubt that Christianity is real, if you doubt that there's even a God, I present to you this truth. Jesus was publicly executed on a cross. Jesus was buried in a tomb. And Jesus rose again from the dead and presented himself alive to many witnesses. Church, we can rejoice in the certain knowledge that Jesus has risen from the dead and lives forevermore. This passage teaches us that Jesus is alive and he reveals himself in the scriptures and in fellowship with his followers. The problem facing these two men on the road to Emmaus was shattered hope. Are any of you there this morning? feeling the weight of sorrow and despair, drowning in sadness. The, the solution for them and for you is to see Jesus in the scriptures and to fellowship with the risen Lord. <clears throat> and their response, <clears throat> pardon me, their response to encountering the risen Lord is the same response that we should have to tell others that Jesus is alive. Because encountering the risen Christ both gives us hope and moves us to action, filling us with joy that overflows to others. If you don't know Jesus today, I urge you to call out to him. He offers life and forgiveness to everyone who will trust in him. Turn from trusting in whatever it is you're looking to save you. And put your faith in him who died for your sins and rose from the dead. You may have been rejected more times than you can count, but the Lord Jesus Christ will not reject you. He said, if anyone comes to me, I will never cast him out. He is a faithful friend and a loving king. If you're a believer and you're facing disappointment or despair or sorrow, don't think that your pain means that God's plan for your life has been derailed. Just as his plan for Christ involves suffering, his plan for you and I also involves suffering. Ask him to reveal his presence in that suffering and to give you the strength to keep trusting. And even as James says, to count it joy 
when you encounter trials of various kinds because he's building endurance in your life. And finally, Church of Jesus Christ, I exhort you to testify to others that Jesus is alive. Matthew Henry wrote, those who, have knowledge, those who have themselves the knowledge of Christ crucified and risen should do what they can to spread that knowledge and lead others into an acquaintance with him. I know that sounds quaint and simple, but that's really the truth. Our primary task is to tell others who Jesus is and what he has done. Tell others that Jesus has died for their sins and risen from the dead. We aren't called to argue people into the kingdom of God. We can't argue someone into the kingdom. We can answer questions and we can present the truth of Christ as clearly and lovingly as possible. But our main task is to tell. Tell others that Jesus is alive. Because the spirit of God has to work to move the hearts of men and women to believe. And we can trust in him to do that work as we praise and honor our risen Lord. Jesus is alive and reveals himself both in the scriptures and in fellowship with his followers. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Mighty God, thank you a million times over for your son Jesus. Thank you that he walked this earth as a man. He knows exactly what we go through. And then at the end of his life, he received the very wrath of God and gave up his blood as a substitute for us on the cross to pay the penalty for the sins that we have committed. And then he rose from the dead victorious, showing that he was indeed the Messiah, that his sacrifice had been accepted, and that therefore we can trust fully that our sins will be removed if we trust in him. Thank you, Lord God. As the song that was sung on Good Friday said, there is now nothing between us but love because of what the Son has done. Lord, I God, I pray that by your spirit you would move the hearts of believers to trust in you more deeply. I pray that you would reset us and re-strengthen us in faith in Christ. I pray that we would encounter the risen Lord today, that his presence would be manifested in our hearts and in our conversations. And Lord, that our love for you would be rekindled and strengthened. And Lord God, I pray that if any don't know you are here today, that you would reach out your hand of loving kindness and draw them to yourself. By your Holy Spirit, convince them that they are sinful and living under your wrath, but to that you offer with open arms salvation in Christ. Thank you, O oh God, for bringing us together. Thank you for the greatness of your salvation. And thank you for the majestic Lord Jesus who is risen and will live forevermore. In your holy name I pray. Amen.